welcome to the Four for Friday podcast. We got a fun show for everybody today. We got some very topical uh, topics to discuss. I'm Will Rob. He's Michael Girdley. Michael, how many questions do we do? Four. Four. Uh, how much? How much time do we usually spend on this? About twenty-five minutes. About Plus twenty-five minutes. Yeah. 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 It's great. Great format. We get in and out and talk about these things that we think are pretty interesting and move on to next week. Pretty fun. Okay, I'm going to fire off our first question here. Is Here's the question. Is the NBA coming back? Yeah, this is really interesting. So my context for putting this question in is I've been a season ticket holder for the NBA. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get my seats back. Like, I, I just, I don't think I'm going to do it. And I wonder how many other people are, are in the same bucket. Just like, man, I could use that money on something else and enjoying all the free time that I've gotten this year by not going to two games a month. Uh, seems, seems like it's going to put a dent in the league. So the question really is, are fans and stadiums coming back? Are ticket prices and in-person appearances for fans coming back? Yeah, for sure. Well, if it comes back, what's it going to look like? Cause I think there's, there's aspects of, of life that COVID has changed completely. There are some that are like, they're going to come back. So like what, what of it, what's, what's it going to look like when it all comes back into, into some semblance of normal normalcy post uh, post pandemic. So this question's a little bit like when we talked about movie theaters and our movie theaters coming back. Mm -hmm. And we kind of thought that the more we teach people to stream at home with nice flat screen TVs and good audio systems in their, their homes, the less excited they're going to be about going back into a big movie theater in the future, even when they're allowed to. Right. So, I mean, I didn't understand the question at first when I looked at it, because I thought, well, they're playing games now. They had a pretty successful bubble for their playoffs and finals, uh, and they seem pretty, pretty prepared for continuing to do business during the pandemic. But your question really is, is the business going to fundamentally change where people don't want to be in the stadiums anymore? Yeah. Or if if they're not interested, what percentage of them, you know, it's not going to be a hundred percent. Is it 50%? Is it 80%? Who knows? It could be 125% because I could be totally full of it. Like when, when pandemic's over, I'm like, yeah, give me double my season tickets. I'm going to get four. Who cares? Go. I got to get I, out of the house. Yeah. I kind of think it's going to come back. I, I kind of think that uh, everybody's going to adopt a, a Texas mentality sometime later in the year where yeah. they disregard the, the risk and they, they want to do, you know, just a little bit more with the, with their activities than it is what is technically allowed under whatever the COVID restrictions are. Yep. So I think there'll be a lot more of a kind of yellow attitude late in the year, 2021 or 2022, kind of a, a live and let die attitude is, as, as uh, cynical as that sounds. Uh, right. I think there's a little place for that in the world. I was talking to my wife about the, the different strains in different regions, the, the UK version of the COVID, the uh, South African or the Brazilian variant. Should, should we be worried that, about those? And I think, no. I think epidemiologists maybe are worried about those, but I think for the rest of us, we just have to accept that there's disease and cold and flu in the world. Now, the time for this attitude was not, you know, week one of quarantine last spring. I think we, we could have done a better job of shutting that down. Yeah. 
but I think at the time for this attitude is going to come up next year. And I think when we think about fans at NBA games, we have to remember to think about young people and 25 year olds without kids and good discretionary income and uh, a, a strong confidence in their own uh, invincibility. Mm-hmm. So I think the NBA will come back and I think people will be excited to see NBA games in person and concerts and live music and, and all of those things. Cool. Well, let's move on to question number two. Uh, is is Robin Hood gambling? Also, this is a uh, callback to a previous discussion that we had. Where first ever, <laughs> where we just we just repeated ourselves exactly on a question. Which a lot yeah, of so, times I think we repeat our ideas in different paraphrases, but this is the first time we've done it exactly the same. Do you remember what you said the last time we asked this question? Uh, I said, yes, mostly. <laughs> I, said, I said, not necessarily, but in practice, it appears to be a lot of gambling. Uh, yeah, so there's a little hedging in the way you respond, but I did the same. I said, well, no, it's not gambling. Don't blame Robinhood. Uh, there are lots of different ways you can invest in securities. Robinhood's just a platform. Uh, and of course, it's possible to just gamble on securities. Uh, don't, don't blame Robinhood and Robinhood users uh, completely when that happens, because it could happen on Schwab.com or E-Trade or with Merrill Lynch, you know, in any format. So it's unfair to pin that all on Robinhood. Yeah. Well, definitely don't blame it all on Robinhood, but I guarantee Robinhood has, you know, has game designers on their staff who are trying to gamify the process of investing to make it more addictive and more fun. Just, just like, Instagram does, Facebook does, all those guys do. So I don't think it's so black and white that you can be like, oh, blame the gun, not the, you know, blame the criminal, not the gun. Like, I think there's some, there's a complicit nature. That adding an element of tilt. uh, Yeah, you gamify the thing to tie it to a people's emotional stuff. Like at a certain point, a platform like, like Robinhood has to be at least somewhat complicit in the thing getting misused. Right. It's just like if you if you let's say you build a gun that is able to be taken through x-rays, you're somewhat complicit when that gets used in a terrorist attack. So I'm not saying they're going that far, but I'm saying there is an element of they they have designed the platform such that it is slightly addictive and gamified. Right. They're trying to they're actively trying to figure out how to give you those little serotonin boosts when you check your account. Yeah. So. So yeah, I think, so our conclusion, it sounds like is Robinhood is not inherently gambling, but it's not exactly like a very clear delineation. There's some gray area in between. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that's our, our conclusion. Uh, and it leads into our next question. What's up with GameStop stock? Dude, the, the moment I, you know, I spent a lot of time on Twitter. The moment that all of Twitter couldn't talk about politics anymore, like this GameStop thing came out of nowhere. And that's what everybody's talking about now. Like, so it's been really interesting to me to watch the, the emotional energy and intellectual energy that was being used to talk about the kind of political discourse and the storming of the, of the Capitol and that stuff. That's all like, all that pent up emotional energy had to go somewhere. And like, now it's like, holy crap, look at what's going on with the short squeeze uh, on GameStop, which is crazy. 
yeah, it does feel like there's a similarity in terms of everybody needs somebody to be really mad at. And yeah. in this case, it feels like uh, a bunch of guys on Reddit were really mad at hedge funds who are shorting stocks. Um, do you want to, should we even attempt to discuss what the short squeeze is or should we leave that to, to other sources? Uh, yeah, I mean, we could try. You, you're the one with the finance degree. Why don't you go ahead? I just hang out on Twitter and read stuff. So, okay. <laughs> let, let me try to practice it. I, I have an econ degree, not a finance degree. Um, so the short squeeze is when people are shorting the stock, when they're betting against the stock, they're selling shares short, they're actually borrowing those shares and selling them without actually owing them, which means owning them, which means they owe somebody a share of the stock for every share they short, and they later have to go out and buy it. So if they thought they could sell the stock at 80 with the intention of later going back and buy it at 50, they would make $30 on that trade. The catch is they have to go and replace that stock at some point. Uh, and if it goes the wrong direction, they have to go out and make a, a purchase that they don't necessarily want to make at a higher price and, and lose money on the trade. And the, the real problem with that is there's no, there's no hard ceiling on their losses because if, if the stock continues to go up, uh, case in point on this one, their losses keep growing. So the pressure to close out the trade and purchase that share to finish it gets, gets stronger and their right. losses get more severe. And, it, and so the price starts getting run up as they all have to buy to cover that short. And then the price running up and the momentum thereof causes all of the current shareholders to be disinterested in selling what they have at the current price. And you end up with what we have, right? Which is a short squeeze. Right. So we have kind of two, two groups of people buying the stock in, in desperate measure right now. We have the, uh, the Reddit Robinhood people who say, hey, this stock shouldn't be shorted. I want to own it. They're going out and buying it. And then we have all the people who had previously shorted it saying, oh, crap, I've got to close out my short position. I got, I've got to purchase to finish. So we have, we have two kind of different opinions on, on the stock, both in the business of buying the stock avidly, which is why it's getting driven up so much. Yeah. The, the problem, of course, is uh, this kind of constant bidding war for the stock has, has made it fairly disconnected from GameStop as a company that produces uh, operating cash flows. Right. It's maybe more like uh, a piece of art as Sotheby's or something right now being auctioned off. So that's what's going on there. Do you have yeah, more I comments? Think, yeah, I think what's interesting is the ability for the internet to gather crowds is enormous. Like to take to take and and coalesce people around an idea like this at a rate that really has never been seen in the past to orchestrate mm -hmm. a short squeeze strategy like this. And and the reality is we're blaming all the Reddit folks for stock market manipulation. You know that trading idea was seen by every single hedge fund that wanted to be on the other side of these hedge funds that were short. And once they saw the momentum start, they all piled in to screw those guys. So it's easy to blame the crowd, but it's interesting when you think about how disparate those groups are and how powerful the movement of crowds became because of the internet and how rapid it was. Like this would not have been possible even probably 10 years ago, just the, 
the infrastructure, the amount of connectivity people had, the types of these forums being active, like it just wasn't a thing. Like t Twitter is a similar kind of example of how an idea could just go viral so fast. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm often critical of, of Twitter because I think it, it represents the, the noisy minority when you see like, oh, tremendous backlash on Twitter. You know, the same could be true of Reddit. Uh, and you're like, oh, well, there are 10,000 comments about that. It's like, okay, yeah. well, 10,000 people on Twitter thought X, but you know what? There are 380 million people in the US. So this 10,000 people seems like a huge number of people that's really upset about something, but really it's actually a tiny portion of the total population, but they're getting this really disproportionate noise. Yeah. Twitter, Twitter is the opposite of reality. And I think I've learned that this year. If, if Twitter consensus is XYZ is going to happen, you can be guaranteed ZYX is going to happen. That's the first thing I do. They're, they're like, we're screwed. I'm like, I'm buying, like I'm going long. <laughs> so it's, it's exactly what it is. That's for macro trends. Like I think Twitter is a hundred percent opposite for macro and big ideas for micro ideas. I think Twitter is, is really good and really, really smart. A lot of times. You think it nails it on micro stuff. For sure. Like if, 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 if something's like publicly well-traded individual stock and all those guys are talking about it on there, like on financial Twitter, like that is a really good thing to go dig in deeply. And because everybody else is going to do the same thing and discover what the first guy found. If it's a macro idea where everybody's talking about it, uh, they're all wrong. They're always wrong. It, that's the pattern. So if they're speaking in broad generalities, likely that the consensus opinion is just wrong. But if they're talking about specific micro things, you think the consensus opinion might be right? Absolutely. That is the pattern I've seen repeatedly. So do you think the, uh, the Reddit thread on Wall Street bets about the value of GameStop was correct? Um, well, intrinsically, do I think it's a good business? No. I, I think anybody who's buying that stock should go into one of those stores. Um, in, but in terms of you know, George Soros style reflexivity and stuff like that. Yeah. They were right on. Yeah. They, they right had on. an accurate insight and that this, the stock is overshorted at this point. I looked today and it was, it was to like a $12 billion company or something like, uh, let's see, it's back up $140 today, 70% uh, back up again today. So you got me. I, I have no idea how this is a $24 billion company. <laughs> it's just funny money. <laughs> uh, imagine if this had happened in like 1995 with, uh, well, it would have to be much later than 1995 in like 2001 with Blockbuster Video. Uh, yeah, a Walking Dead corporation. Yeah, something yeah. is just like. <laughs> in hindsight, would we be completely furious at a hedge fund that shorted shares of Blockbuster Video in 2002? Am I supposed to be angry about what's going on now? I, I don't know. It feels like people are angry about what's going on now. Uh, I mean, the thing I've seen the populist kind of ideas that folks have gotten mad about is that uh, Robinhood and these other platforms have cut off the trading ability in these stocks at to the little guy, but the big guys keep getting to trade. Like that's that's the thing that really... I've seen people get mad about. It's not the short squeeze. Everybody's like, who cares about those stupid hedge funds? They deserved it. Yeah. 
I think there may be a thing there where Robinhood looked up and said, oh, well, we're not a $24 billion company. We can't be the only market maker in GameStop if there's this much volume. Well, supposedly they started to have counterparty risk. So, right. you know, when they're doing, when they're allowing shorts and that sort of stuff in their platform, um, eventually it starts moving so quickly that they had to slow or shut things down because you have to like make sure the other party is going to be solvent. Um, make sure that the funds that are executing on their firms that are executing on their stuff, if it's happening too quickly, they could, they could have be loaning out more shares than they actually have all, all kinds of problems like that could have. So supposedly the, the rationale from Robin hood is justified in practice. It looks like they're screwing the little guy. Okay. Yeah, like what you couldn't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair at all. You can't shut down just for Robinhood users, the ability to trade or short that stock and not do it market-wide. Like they should have just halted the whole stock if they're going to do that. Right. That's where Robinhood. That's the SEC who has to make that decision, not Robinhood. Yeah, that's that's where Robinhood should have called the SEC and said, this is, we need you to halt this stock because we're such a big market maker in it now that, but, but they didn't do that. Yeah. That was a big mistake. All right. Question number four. Man, we are doing so good today. This yeah. 10 out of 10 would show up for this again. Uh, okay. Okay. Number four, Will, should you argue on Twitter? No, it's not really worth your, your time. Uh, so I think there, I think there's a nuanced answer to this. I think that there is number one, there is just plain old trying to change somebody's mind on the internet. Never a good idea. Never a good idea, especially if you're on Twitter and there's like that guy who's an anonymous account and they only have like 22 followers. Like there's a reason they're anonymous with 22 followers. Like those are usually totally dicks. So you don't need to try to change their mind. They're, the, they're just there for therapy to be mean. But I think arguing on Twitter when when closer to a constructive discussion is really powerful. Right. I think that's where where Twitter is beautiful is if you find really intelligent people and you start to probe their thinking with a curious beginner's mind, like how do I learn from this person through this discussion? Like I think it it works. But no, trying to change people's mind on Twitter, like don't do that. <laughs> I think it's stupid. Uh, do you think you can get past the limitation of how many characters are allowed in a typical tweet? Uh a two two eighty. 280. So yeah. Twitter's kind of limited as a thoughtful, detail-oriented discourse by that 280. Do you think you can circumvent that if you have a, a long series of tweets and back and forth with somebody? Uh, I think both parties, yes. I, but I think both parties have to be complicit in making it stay constructive, right? I've been in things, and I've been guilty of this too, where it eventually goes from let's try to learn or try to talk about stuff to let's try to win the argument. And like, I've caught myself doing that and I've had friends be like, you know, get a room. <laughs> it was just like a better thing. Um, so I think as long as both parties keep approaching it from the let's be constructive here and debate something and learn from each other and be open-minded and, and willing to change their mind, I think it can be fine. And I think there's actually benefits to doing that in a Twitter style forum which requires a couple of things. One, it requires you not, it, it requires you to take a breath between each response mm -hmm. because you only get to say 280 characters. It requires you to be very crisp and direct in what you think. Uh, and it requires you to slow down and actually think about what you're going to say, which often doesn't come up in normal discourse. Yeah. 
this is actually that points to like one of my theories about online reviews or Yelp reviews. Yeah. The, the review that's like three to five very long paragraphs, you can skip that review. Right. That person obviously had a very right. bad experience, but they're so worked up that they're not, they're not communicating information right. in a meaningful way. Right. The review that's like one and a half to two and a half sentences uh, often, often gives you some meaning. I think there's also the uh, the strategy of only reading two, three, or four star reviews, avoiding the ones and fives. Uh -huh. Like, okay, Correct. like if yeah. somebody puts two stars in there, good chance they, you know, were They're at least somewhat it. balanced in their view. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we wrapped it up. Man, this is this is gold. I think all fifty of our listeners are really going to get into this one this week. It's going to be huge. <laughs> This next, this next bit is an additional recording that we're going to splice into or have spliced into our podcast from Friday. It's more detail on the GameStop Robin Hood short squeeze. Oh. Uh, I've got a bit of a story to tell. Would you like to hear it? Please. I love, I love a good story. So I watched all this go down and I decided the short squeeze had very little to do with the stock itself mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, the stock mm -hmm. had been languishing and it might be, you know, a future blockbuster video story. So I was kind of believing what the stock price had been for most of 2020 and 2019 kind of teens to up to say 25. And when I see the stock start to rally, you know, 10, 15, 30% a day, and then all of a sudden start jumping up, over 40, like, you know, almost doubling in a single day. I say, okay, it's a short squeeze. That's exciting. Like good for those, those guys who caused the short squeeze and made a lot of money, right. but I think it's going to go back down. I don't want to do a short sale. Problem with the short sale is if you sell the shares of the stock and you're wrong and they keep going up, uh, you don't have an upward limit on how much money you can lose, okay. which is what got these hedge funds in trouble and what got people upset and what people got people excited about how much money they might be losing. No limit to how much you might lose on a short sale. So the way to do it more safely is to purchase a put contract, a put option contract, which gives you the right to sell later on at a predetermined time, uh, predetermined price in a, in a time period determined by the contract. You're with me so far? I'm following you, yeah. I have some questions. Okay, so on January 22nd, I buy my first uh, two put option contracts. I buy at a strike price of 42, which means if the price of the stock starts falling below 42, I start making money. And at the time that I did this, the stock price was around 43, intending to head up. Okay. And you know there are a lot of option trades, and I think a lot of people were messing around with real short-term options on the, in this whole scenario. Uh, but I was picking longer expiration dates out. I want April, July, November, something like that for all of these contracts that I do. Okay. Uh, to give myself time to be right, because I think I'm gonna be right on the overall result of the direction of the stock price. But, you know, I don't know exactly when it's gonna happen. I don't know if it's gonna exactly happen tomorrow or the next day. So the next couple of days, the stock keeps shooting up. And by January 26th, the stock price is up to 90. 
I'm like, okay, well, I maybe made a mistake at buying options at 42, but I still think this huge rally is going to go away pretty quickly once the the short squeeze ends. So I buy two more contracts that day, one at a strike price of 55 and one at a strike price of 48. Great. So it's January 26. I've got a total of four contracts uh, with different expiration dates and uh, and strike prices. Okay. So I'm going to hold these these uh, these contracts and give myself a little time to be right and see what happens. Stock goes up a lot more on January 27th. So I look at it and say, okay, this stock is huge now. All of a sudden, it's up to 329. Boy, I should really react to this. I'm going to buy more more put options, even though the ones I already bought are probably worth nothing now. And I go to buy a a put contract when the stock is traded at 329 and all the option contracts I'm looking at, they're costing like 140, $180 per contract. So these giant premiums to get involved in this option contract, that's not currently worth anything. It's only worth something if the stock falls back down. I go, what's going on here? This is too expensive. Uh, you know, this is too rich for my blood. I can't do this anymore. And so I look, this is a little counterintuitive. How are we doing on the stock uh, put contracts that I purchased already? They're up a lot. And what's happening is the, the value of the option is a function of the strike price, the current stock price, the expiration date, and how volatile the stock is. What are the market expectations that this thing could really change direction? And the volatility is up so much. So even though the stock price went in the wrong direction for me, the options have become a lot more valuable. Uh, another way of saying this is that everyone and their brother was wanting to get involved in this trade in some way, whether they were going long, whether they're buying call options or shorting or increasing their short position or buying put options. Everything involved with GameStop was uh, more expensive because of the volatility, because of the excitement. So the, the cost of the options was so high. So I looked at this and said, okay, well, the stock doesn't really just have to fall below the strike prices for this to work for me. It has to, to fall by you know, a significant amount below the strike prices before these options start to become exciting because I still have that premium I paid just to own them. And I'm up these big gains just for you know, getting involved in the volatility, but the risk that these things are actually now worthless is, is much higher than it was when I bought them. Okay, we're gonna go ahead and capitalize on that gain. I'm gonna start selling these. So I sold one put contract on January 27th. I sold another one on January 28th. And then I sold one on January 29th. And this whole time the stock's kind of between uh, 300 and 400, just giant numbers for a stock that was worth kind of 18 to $23 uh, for all of 2019 and big chunks of 2020. So we recorded on January 29th. We talked in general about Robinhood and is it gambling and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the stock trade in general, but I still had one contract and it was kind of an open position. So I didn't want to promote or advocate or speak against my position. I wanted to speak only in general terms when we recorded, 
but I thought it was a, such an interesting story that I wanted to share it with our listeners. Um, so I was unable to close it on Friday before we were, we recorded. I closed it on uh, Monday, sold uh, my option contract. So the first three, I had about a 25% gain on each of those. And the last one, I only made a small gain because uh, even though the stock price was coming down in value on Monday, uh, so was the volatility. People were less excited okay. about get involved at any cost. So I only made about a 5% gain on that last one. And probably if I had held uh, a couple more days, I would have made a little bit more on that contract, but I'd be looking at closing out the position now anyway. At the time we're recording this, the uh, GameStock's <laughs> trading about 105 per share. So yeah. already a huge decline from its peak at 410, not so long ago. Um, cool. Well, thanks for thanks for bringing us along your journey. Uh, would you like to know how much money I made on GameStop this week? Um, exactly zero dollars. Would you like to know how much I lost? Zero. I didn't even look at it, except for tw I tweeted. Okay. Nice work on that. Oh, dude. Uh, before we go, I have to tell you about a business that everybody should totally open right now. Would you like to know what it is? Sure. Mac repair store. I took my computer to the Mac repair store this morning. They, they're like, okay, just leave it. Um, we're going to look at it in 14 days. They're not even going to, they can't even look at it for 14 days. They can just charge whatever they want there. And with all the Apple stores, there's only one open in the whole town. So they can just charge whatever they want. Just whatever they want. Oh, it's that's crazy. Because the Apple store itself, the Genius Bar and so on is closed. So you have to go to the uh, independent guys. Well, I spent three hours with Apple support on Saturday. Uh, and they said, okay, do you want to send in your MacBook? Which is basically 12 months and three days old. So no warranty for you. And uh, it's amazing how that stuff always breaks right after warranty ends. Anyway, and... Uh, they said, they said, okay, well, here are your two options. You can ship it to us, but we're not even going to look at it unless you give us $800, which is probably two thirds or a third of what the laptop's worth. Uh, or you can drive it to one of our stores and they'll look at it. And I said, okay, cool. I'll, I'll drive to the store. Can you give me an appointment? And they said, sure. Here's the nearest store. It's in College Station. That's three hours away. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's where Texas A&M is. I was like, it's not my fault. You closed down all the Apple stores. Like these could be safely operated. Like, the grocery store's open. Your stupid Apple store could be open. Anywho. Yeah, so I took on the other hand, they were on the, the front of this thing. Even when it was in China, they were proactive about uh, being cautious. Yeah. Wear a mask. We all, that's what the rest of us are doing. Okay. Well, anyway, that's my story about options to contracts. Don't consider it investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell GameStop. Um, if my friends ask me for investment advice, I always say buy index funds and do dollar cost averaging. So... The moral of the podcast is always do as we say, not as we do. Uh, what I do is really hard. Maybe that's why it works. Okay. Thanks, Michael. We'll see. <laughs> uh, cool. Anything else we need to talk about today? No, I've got to figure out how to uh, splice this ending into our, our podcast. So.